Hello, Dave. Hello, Ollie. Are you better? He's back. He's alive. Oh, you nearly Just... you nearly died. Oh, it was awful. Man flu. No one quite understands just how bad man flu is. Welcome, listener, to a Phoenix-like episode of Sustainababble number 31. Yes, We are your friendly little podcast about the environment and politics and why it's all so complicated and can't be able to just get along. Yes, indeed. As always, we do work for environmental charities, but these are our own views. So if you have any beef with anything that we talk about, beef it in our direction. What have we got coming up this week on? Well, we have got some important world leaders having a flim-flam. Mr Cameron and Mr Modi saying absolutely nothing, but taking a long time to say it. Uh, We've got Shell being ejected from a museum. Uh, we've got a big thorny issue of protest and boycott and whether there's any point doing either. There is another woman in Inhof Corner and we're cross about this one. And to finish off the show, we are talking about beer. Hooray! Can I start drinking the beer now? You may. Sustainable of the Week. So, Sustainable of the Week. This is the section where we have a look at some of the guff, the nonsense, the blather that has been spewed forth in the name of trying to sound green, usually by governments or businesses. And this week, it is from our dear leader, the Right Honourable David Cameron, and his counterpart, Mr Modi, in India. And what have they done, Dave? Well, what they've done is they've got together and they've talked some absolute horsey plop. (laughs) (laughs) They really have. They really have. They have issued an India-UK joint statement on energy and climate change. Now, I got called up in a bit of of a bother by somebody when this got emerged on Twitter. And they said, have you seen it? Have you seen it? There's all this stuff in it. And I was like, no, I haven't seen it. Get off the phone and I'll go and read it. And I was all worked up for this kind of, you know, grand... um, uh, pronouncement from these two power players on the world stage and it's basically a little microsoft word document where they haven't even bothered to include logos or anything in which they spend 19 paragraphs saying nothing absolutely well, so, nothing. I mean, not not nothing exactly but what it is is the worst combination so when we started this podcast there were certain types of babble that are particularly egregious and irritating. And this is one of them. It's where you've got people basically saying nothing of any significance, but dressing it up in florid, sustainable ease and making it <laughs> seem to anyone who isn't really paying attention that what they said is somehow new and brilliant, right? And it isn't. So you start with these, these statements about how the two of them, Mr Modi and Mr Cameron, are stressing... That addressing climate change is a shared strategic priority for India and the UK. You know, okay, well, that's good, I suppose. They're not just um, saying it; they're stressing, no, they're stressing it. it. And they say words like bilateral, and you start to think, where's this actually going? And as you scroll down, well, they they don't really announce anything. Although there is then 
this extraordinary little section, which I know you wanted to pick up, Dave. Mm, yes. Well, where's Arabella? Come over here. Ar- come on. Come on, Arabella. Right. Thank you very much. Um, now, we're going to get Arabella to read out something from which the ensuing florid, horrible mess of babble tumbles, right? This is fairly early on, and this is what the document says. The two Prime Ministers underlined their shared and uncompromising commitment to tackling climate change. Got that. Oh, uncompromising. Mr David Cameron, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and Mr Narendra Modi, boss of India, are uncompromising in their commitment to tackling climate change. Now, what do you think uncompromising means? Well, in this context, um, I, I would assume it means stopping at nothing to yes. save us from a flying, frying planet or yeah. a flying planet. Or a flying or, planet. Yeah. Or I think what it means is not compromising. That's what I it think It does. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly does suggest that, doesn't it? So uh, in the very, very, very next paragraph, what you get is a reeling off in civil servant ease of the two things that the countries are doing. Prime Minister Cameron, it says, underlines the UK's commitment to reducing its greenhouse gas emissions by 80%. Meeting its carbon budgets, it compromisingly notes, in the most <laughs> cost-effective manner. You see, they didn't need to say they that. Need to say they, that. Could, they could have said, you know, because this is about climate change and because we're uncompromising, uncompromising. what I'm going to say in this statement is we are going to meet our carbon budget, full stop. But they don't. They miss out that full stop and replace it with cheaply. Prime Minister Modi, then not to be out uncompromised, then comes out with some wonderful eco-guff where he highlights India's commitment to... Get ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hit me with an uncompromising statement. Here we go. Here's an uncompromising statement straight from the uncompromising mouth of uncompromising Prime Minister Modi. He will reduce India's emissions intensity by 35% by 2030 compared to 2005 levels and put in place 40% cumulative electric power installed capacity from non-fossil fuel-based energy resources by 2030 through national determined development measures and priorities. Well, if that isn't uncompromising, I don't know what is. So for, for a start, for a start, they're talking about emissions intensity, okay? And we've had, put the sexy emissions intensity music on, Dave. Okie doke. Good stuff, yes. we're back in the groove. Okay, we've talked about sexy emissions intensity before. Um, and basically, while economists and civil servants understand it to be a thing, the atmosphere doesn't really, because what emissions intensity is all about is for every bit of growth, using slightly fewer emissions to get that growth. But it doesn't mean having less stuff going in the atmosphere. And really, really, the, you know, the melting ice caps and the warming seas and the drying out deserts are only that bothered about how much of the dirty carbon stuff is in the atmosphere, not that per unit of growth you've put slightly less of the dirty stuff in the atmosphere than you used to. So for a start, I uh, I smell a little bit of a of a rat about this whole uncompromising nature of his statement. And it doesn't and then, happen with anything else, does it? Like, you don't go on a diet and reduce your cake intensity, do you? You don't say, like, <laughs> you know, I want to lose 10 stone by the end of the year, so what I'm going to do is for every run that I go on, I'm going to eat a bit less cake. You don't do it like that. You go, I'm going to eat less cake. That's what I'm going to do. Or I'm going to stop eating cake because if I eat cake, I'm going to get a fat ass. 
And this is what this highlights, this great big mahusive horrible paragraph. We've already tweeted it. We tweeted it last week, and you can have another look again. We'll, we'll tweet it again. This is kind of what you get when you do the global climate massive shindig that's happening in Paris at the end of the year, when you do it the way that it's being done now, which is where you ask all of the countries, all of the big players, and you say to them, what do you reckon you can do then? for this whole cutting emissions lark. The way it used to be done was you would have a problem, climate change, and you would have some science, and you would say, well, the science says we have to cut emissions, and off you all go and cut emissions by that much, and we reckon because you're a big country or a rich country, you should get a bit more, and because you're a poor country, you should do a bit less. And it started from saying, what do you actually have to do and work backwards? Now what you're doing is going to countries like the UK and India and saying, what do you reckon you can do then? For cutting emissions and what that well, not, not not do you reckon you can do or what do you reckon you what, will what, what do? do you want to do what do you intend do you to do how much cake do you want to cut out what, what do you think yeah. like do you, do you like donuts you want to keep doing keep eating donuts keep the donuts then no you keep your donuts keep, keep it that's fine oh. no, no one's forcing who am i to tell you yeah. not to have your donuts i mean that's what weight watchers do isn't it you turn up and you say i've got a fat ass and i want to do something about it and weight watchers go well, what do you reckon what do you reckon eclairs Cut eclairs out? What do you think? And you go, oh, no, I do. I really like eclairs. Yeah. Oh, okay, no, I, fine, can't, fine. I can't cut out my eclairs. Yeah. They're, they're, they're lovely. Yeah, fine. Okay, carry on. What about jelly? Do you like. Oh, no, no, I do like a bit of jelly, especially on Thursday. Mm, okay. Uh, well, you go away and you come back with like a, a list, a, a thing that you've worked out, which basically says, I'll cut out hobnobs every fourth Tuesday, um, but as long as it's cost effective and, and lard effective to do so. Reasons to be cheerful. So, moving swiftly on to reasons to be cheerful, because we need cheering up, don't we? Particularly when you've got a nose full of mucus, which is my current situation. Sorry, listener. Uh, So, we are here to talk about Shell again, and fresh from leaving the Arctic, yay! They are now leaving the Science Museum. Now, you might not necessarily have known they were in the Science Museum. I was in the Science Museum. Were you? With Shell. Uh, not with Shell. I got, I got lost in there the other day. I went to see the exhibition about cosmonauts, which are astronauts from Russia, presumably off their mash on drugs. Um, and <laughs> what, um, with the, Because of the athletics regime, you mean? That's right, yes. Okay. So that clearly affected 1950s cosmonautization. Um, and I got lost in there and I got a bit scared and I ended up um, in an exhibition about food and then that made me very hungry. And then I, got, um, I had to have a little sit down. Uh, yes, well, the Science Museum, like many of our great institutions, has been taking grubby little pockets of money from some of the world's nastiest companies, like Shell. Now, there is a growing, we've talked about this before, there is a growing movement of activism in the country which is imploring our sort of famous and fated institutions to stop taking money from Shell and BP and Exxon and the like. And the Science Museum this week sort of grudgingly admitted that they, to quote, do not have plans to renew their existing sponsorship deal with Shell or initiate a new deal or funding agreement with them. Now, that is quite good news, isn't it? Because it means no more nasty oil company pretending that they're the bastions of science and um, expertise on the environment. Well, so... This, yes, it is quite good news, I suppose. It's it good is, news, Dave. No, well, mm, it's Dave. quite... Dave. Mm, mm, yeah, but... Uh, 
You see, the thing is, right, so they haven't actually said, absolutely not, we will not take money from Shell. What a bunch of evil bastards. And they haven't said, we are sorry for putting on exhibitions about climate change in which we let Shell lobby us for the stuff that was going to be included in it. And they haven't said... Well, just say a little bit more about that, because that's the important thing, isn't it? Yes. Like that's, that seems to have been what's kind of been the catalyst. For yeah, this. so in the 2014, which was last year, um, The Guardian did some digging around this. So Shell was sponsoring a particular gallery and exhibition in the Science Museum, which was all about climate change, all about climate science, sponsored by Shell. And I remember the first time I saw that, and I stood there, and my mouth literally did this. Look. Flops open. Yeah, and my tongue You're like those um, cobras that can dislocate their jaw. Anyway, so I thought, what the flipping heck's going on here? It was bad enough when I used to go to the natural... Uh, what's it called? The Wildlife Photographer of the Year thingy in the Natural History Museum sponsored by BP and various other gits, right? And you'd have pictures of beautiful, pristine landscapes with nice, fluffy foxes and things in them, which was being sponsored by companies that like to destroy beautiful, pristine landscapes and drill oil out of it, right? And so that was bad enough. And they stopped that, didn't they? And this thing about Shell sponsoring this climate science gallery, the Guardian said, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what they get out of that. And they did some digging. And they showed that Shell had indeed lobbied the Science Museum and said, hmm, can we be a bit careful how we talk about this stuff? Because we don't want to have all the NGOs coming and calling us bastards. Um, And you know that debate you're going to put on? Could you, do we get a say about what that talks about and yeah they wanted it to be an invite only event didn't they and they didn't want to uh proactively open up a debate on the topic no i bet you don't i bet you don't want to proactively open up a debate about the climate change you're making worse sunshine so anyway they've said no more right um or have they see they haven't they haven't said that they've said well we had a sponsorship deal which has run out and we don't currently plan to get another one but they've not said no have they So this allows everyone, I guess, to kind of keep a bit of face about it. Another example of this was Shell getting kicked out of a thing called the Corporate Leaders Group on Climate Change a couple of months ago, which Prince Charlie, a German son-in-waiting of the British throne, had set up and he'd said, uh, this is going to be for all the companies that are good on climate change to come and lead. And Shell were in it, which was always a bit odd, in my opinion. And then one day, they weren't. And what uh, the final wording was, was something like, Shell are not in that anymore. Uh, they got tired. They've gone for a lie down. Uh, no no one yeah. thinks they're bastards. No, they haven't done anything. No one's done anything wrong. We're all still friends. But Shell won't be members of the corporate leaders group on climate change anymore. And that's kind of what's happened here with the Science Museum. Yes? Yes, I think so. It's all a bit, um, well, we neither confirm nor deny that we are in a bit of a pickle about this. But Shell are no longer involved for now until you stop paying attention, at which point they might be involved again, possibly. So uh, last week, when you were off being pathetic with man flu, I talked to um, a guy called David Turnbull over in America. Have a listen to episode 30 for that. We talked about Keystone and we talked about protest and whether or not protest has actually achieved what it looks like it has. And I think that's something I think about quite a lot. I pull you up on this sometimes just for fun to see what you do, to see if your nostrils go all flary when you're saying that a thing (laughs) has happened because of protest. And I say, isn't it just as likely that it's happened for another reason, right? And there was that piece, wasn't there, that we saw that your man, uh, Jeffrey Lean, a Telegraph journalist, had written 
about this, which got us thinking. Yeah, well, it was, as, as I think you said, it was an example of excellent trolling. I mean, he, Jeffrey Lean is, a, is effectively, you know, a greenie, really. He's quite old school and he, he, he's a bit of a sort of conservationist rather than a climate change activist, if you like. But he's a greenie. He writes about this stuff. He cares. But he's written this article in which his central thesis is basically that the only people who are really having an impact now on the climate debate are the sort of capitalists, the men in suits, the bankers, the money men. And it's the crusties, as I think he calls them, the people chaining themselves. That, is that us? That is us, I think he's, he's right. referring to, yeah. People who, you know, chain themselves to things and make placards and say that, um, you know, capitalism's got to come crashing down. That they're irrelevant and they're not having any impact. And, he, you know, it's a sort of a slightly clunky argument, but he's sort of saying protest has had its day. Now we're on to the serious business of um, talking about it like grown-ups and making making big decisions. And, I mean, he's just trying to wind people up. That is what Jeffrey Lean does, and he does it very well and often quite funnily. He tries to wind people up. But I don't think he's right. I don't think he's right. I think he misses the central point, which is that the only reason these people in suits are talking about this sort of stuff is because of decades of successful protest movements or certainly impactful protest movements getting it on the agenda and forcing through change. You know, this is this is the kind of linear progression, if you like. Down with this sort of thing. Careful now. Yes, and this is, uh, there was a wonderful, wonderful piece by all-round superhero David Roberts who writes for Vox over in the USA. We will post a link to it. It is great. And it's all about sort of campaigning and protest and why you do it. And he talks really elegantly about things like Rosa Parks, civil rights struggles back in the... 60s um, in America, when people do something, you protest against something because it's the right thing to do. And most of the time, nothing really happens. You, You have a protest and nothing appears to change. But sometimes it's the right fight at the right time. And sometimes it captures people's imagination. Um, and I think that the stuff with Shell and the Science Museum and all of the, you know, the broader stuff, the stuff about get money out of funding arts in general, feels like the right sort of campaign at the right sort of time. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You can't control this stuff, can you? That's the beauty of, of protesting and campaigning. And when it's really, really going well, it becomes totally bigger and more wild and unpredictable than anything you ever planned. That's what's so exciting about it. Um, but it is, I mean, all of this stuff is about the sort of social license, which is a phrase dangerously close to getting klaxoned, um, but I think is is real. The idea that that in the sort of wider public consciousness, do sh- people like Shell have the sort of legitimacy they need to carry on doing what they're doing? And they do at the moment. And they do at the moment. And that is the, that is, well, and it's changing, isn't it? You know, and this piece by your man, Mr. Roberts, um, argues that for, for a very long time, the idea of um, any bit of new fossil fuel infrastructure was just a given. It's like, yeah, of course we should have it. We need fossil fuels. And all of this protest on so many different fronts is really starting to question that. And sometimes it's really um, wonderful and exciting and it captures the imagination and it takes off like Keystone. Sometimes it's very small groups of people not really getting much pickup, but you've got to have all of it. <laughs> So back in episode five, which was a very long time ago, when there were Liberal Democrats and Top mm. Gear, and the idea of Jeremy Corbyn being leader of Her Majesty's Opposition would have got you punched in the face and laughed at, right? Um, we talked about... Things have changed a lot, <laughs> haven't they? <laughs> they? Yeah. They really have. Yeah, they have. Um, 
we talked about divestment back, um, which is the thingy about pulling your money out of oil and gas, be that pension fund money or whatever. And um, go back and listen to it because we were younger then and we had more hopes and dreams. And one of the things we talked about was, does it work? Does divestment work? And you get, there are two camps of people. And I reckon you go on Twitter and you see two sorts of articles about divestment. One of them says, what are you doing? Divestment doesn't work. If you take your money out of fossil fuels, someone else is just going to buy that investment. Blah, 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 blah. And then you get the other side written by people with a brain in their head, which says, no, because what you're doing is you're making this stuff toxic. You're making mm. a political, cultural problem out of fossil fuels and climate change. Exactly. You're basically saying, up with this, we shall not put. You've got to make it icky. You've got to make people go, yeah. no, that's horrible. I don't want that. And unless you have that, you don't change politics. Unless you change the politics, you don't move the money. Unless you move the money, you don't stop bad stuff happening. So I've had I've had a bee in my bonnet for a while about... Something that annoys me, and it's this, it's when people, greenies, right, we have a reputation for not doing stuff that kind of inconveniences ourselves. So like not flying ever, or not shopping in Tesco's, or, you know, making these little stands in our personal life against stuff that we think is bad, right? But I've never quite been sure that that kind of thing, a whole bunch of people who never flew anyway, no longer flying, or a whole bunch of people who would never go to a supermarket anyway, not going to a supermarket, by itself, really achieves very much. I think it does if you start, if you're a nice, enthusiastic, not weird ambassador for it with your mates and you say, no, the reason I didn't fly is because of climate change and that's why I'm going to go and stay in a rickety old caravan in Dorset for a fortnight. Um, If you do that, I suppose it makes a difference. But boycotts have to be part of, you have to communicate them. You have to be passionate about them. You have to tell people why you're doing it. You have to tell the companies why you're doing it. You have to actually do something with it. Or people don't notice. And if people don't notice, then the f- planes are going to keep on flying. Tesco are going to keep on Tescoing. And you'll be going and staying in manky old damp rat infested caravans in Dorset until you die very sad and alone. In half of the week. Right, Inhofe time. This is the section of the show named after Jim Inhofe, mm. Senator Jim Inhofe in America, who is a Muppet because he thinks he's a climate change is a Muppet. This week, we are putting in Inhofe corner and sitting them down on the chair and saying, face the corner and think very hard about what you've done. The Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, Amber Rudd. So what's she been and gone and done then, Amber Rudd? Who, uh, we should note, is now the second woman to uh, make her way into Inhof Corner in the 31 episodes that we've done, um, following the boss of the fracking lobby industry thingy. Um, she has leaked a letter, or at least a letter what she wrote has been leaked. And in this letter, she was writing to other colleagues in government, basically admitting that the legally binding targets that have been dished down... Come on, stick the legally binding target music on. Are you going to talk about, like, legally... about targets and percentages and things like that? Because if you are, I reserve the right to cut you off. Okay, I'm going to talk about it. Just what... You won't be able to resist. So, there are targets... interesting. There are targets dished down from Europe... Yep. ...about how much of our final energy consumption, how much of the energy we consume across heat and transport and electricity must come from renewable sources. And what this letter says is, mm, 
Don't think we're on track to meet those targets, which is very different to what they've been saying publicly. And it was a bit of a clunky old attempt at leaking. We're not sure that this wasn't entirely deliberate because it's basically saying, look, if you're not going to let me have any wind farms, you're not going to let me have any solar power, um, then, you know, the heat stuff, which is really complicated, and the transport stuff, which is also quite complicated and risks being very ungreen by putting things like biofuels in your tank, is going to have to do more and, um, you know, give us some more money. So it's all a bit politics I think this is all about your, your, you know, your comprehensive spending review, which is coming up, whereby her department's going to get chopped to the bone. And I think it's probably a little bit of a cry for help, isn't it? So is what you're saying then that this letter, which Amber Rudd did write, and which appears to show her saying in private something very different to what she says in public, and indeed I think the letter even says something like publicly we're saying one thing, but we're not actually you know, necessarily on course to do it. You reckon that actually she shouldn't be in Inhofe Corner for the contents of that letter because it was a little cri de cour, it was a little cry for help, yes? That actually she's saying to horrible Uber Inhofe, George Osborne, master of the payroll and general all-round git, that look what you're doing, you're destroying my ability to spend any money on this stuff. And so what I'm going to have to do is, oh, and some of the stuff, Sorry, I've turned this from a question into a rant now. That's Some of the what stuff you do. that she that said. You do. You've got a long, proud tradition of doing that on 30 previous episodes. So shut up and listen, right? Some <laughs> of the stuff that she has said that they're going to do instead is so bonkers that you do, there is some, you know, there's credence to your theory of it. It's the equivalent of saying, um, I'm going to have to make an apple pie but I've chopped down all the apple trees in my garden. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait for the pink fluffy unicorns to bring me the apples just before I need to put the pie in the oven, right? It's things that don't exist. It's saying, well, instead of doing wind and solar, which we can't do because we can't afford it and we don't want to and UKIP and cost-effective and all that guff, see start of show for more information, we are going to invent a trading scheme that doesn't yet exist and buy other countries' electricity, or we're going to build a cable that isn't yet built to Norway and get their electricity, and even though it won't be built until after we have to comply with this target, we'll just sort of, yeah, that'll do, won't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it is deliberately absurd, I think. Mm. Um, I don't think that means that she shouldn't be in Inhofe Corner. I mean... You know, she has done some fairly bad things, as previously chronicled in this podcast. Um, And I think as much as anything else, it's about fighting for her department's corner, you know, saying keep keep us alive as a department, at least on life support, you know, give us a little bit of money. Is it like what Um, Jose Mourinho is doing at Chelsea? Is it the equivalent (laughs) of of deliberately bringing on... Uh, Loftus cheek, in, you know, and taking Edine Hazard off in the 60th minute, and going out there and, and you know chucking all sorts of completely deluded wobblies just so yeah. that you get some more money to spend in January on players to show how big your willy is. is that basically, think, what it is. I think it's a, a very good analogy to think of George Osborne as the Roman Abramovich of this uh, this particular football club. Well, there are and, similarities. Yeah, and Amberard saying, "Look, there's only so much I can do with this sub-rate team." Uh, give us me, give us some more money in the transfer window, and um, and I'll get John Terry out. Mentally, they try, they try, they try, but they collapse. They are in such a low moment that they collapse. I mean, one thing I don't like about it is this just total acceptance on her part that you can't do any more on renewable electricity. Because what she is saying and what she's right to say is that broadly the UK is on track to meet its own targets. These are not European targets; its own targets for how much renewable electricity they want to be generating, which is a good thing. However, 
They're then saying, therefore, we shouldn't do any more because that's the target and we're stopping there. Mm. Um, why? Why not do any more? I mean, if anything, you've proved that it's easier and cheaper and more popular to do renewable electricity than you ever thought. So why not do more of it? Why not? You know, it's bizarre to just go, well, that's the target. It's like it's like saying we plan to cure 30% of cancer patients um, by 2020. And, um, you know, you start developing drugs and people get all into their innovation and they come up with some amazing new cures. And it's like, yeah, God, we're on track to do it. Fantastic. Right. Well, that's the target, mate. So stop there. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I've just got cancer. Well, sorry. Things that make you go, hmm. So, things that make you go, hmm. Mm. Or in this case, yum. Yes. This is exciting. Uh, that's what it makes you do, isn't it, Dave? <laughs> because, because, listener, I should explain that Dave is a vegan, a militant vegan, as he once described himself. Yes. Now, he is also a beer drinker. Yes, I am. And what do we know about beer? Well, we know it's delicious and it gives you a small headache if you drink too much of it. But one of them, Guinness, the famous, famous Guinness, has said that after 256 years, it will stop using fish swim bladders in its recipe. Hang on a minute. Woohoo! Ooh, crikey. There we are. Huh? How about Skillfully that, done. Yeah. Skillfully done. Thank you very and much. And it is past midday now as we, we record, so that's not even a bit weird. As Dr. Carl yes. said, it's always six o'clock somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, and this so. is the thing that people who are not hardcore militant vegans don't necessarily know, right? There is fish in everything. There's f- I did not, I did yeah. not know this, yeah. and I thought I paid a little bit of attention to this sort of stuff. Yeah, all beer, pretty much, well, pretty much all ale things like Guinness, pretty much all wine. It's got a thing in it called Isinglass, which is a it's a, from the, it's a purifying agent from a, the swim bladder of the fish. I don't have the remotest clue how in practice a little itty bitty bit of a fish gets its way into beer, what it does. Couldn't tell you, but or, apparently or it's how, like, how do they work that out? Yeah. When they were first making Guinness 256 years ago, when they when they had the first brew, they were like, hmm, this that's good. Um it's just missing something. Try that. Try that swim bladder. <laughs> put that. Put that goldfish's <laughs> gland in there, will you? See how that works. Yeah. We'll just see. Yeah. Now I've just got a hunch. Oh, that's delicious. That's it. Right. It stays. It's very up so there, strange. So um, the thing is that Guinness. Um, everyone's going whoop de doo Guinness, right? And and the reason why Guinness in particular are singled out for this is because they're quite open about it. They've got their big old factory over in Dublin, which I've been to, um, where I couldn't drink any of the Guinness because it has fish in it. Um, and they, they're they quite open about it. They say there's fish in it, right? And so now they've said they're not putting fish in it no more. And it's very exciting uh, because it means I can drink Guinness now. But a um, couple of things to say. Firstly, all the other beers still got fish in it. And people don't freak out about that. And if you, you know, people don't freak out as far as I can see about beef gelatin in jelly babies either. Um, But there's all sorts of little sneaky things in stuff. And secondly, is this another example of protest achieving something? Go on. Well, you said, you you said to me before I started getting nicely sozzled, you said that there was a petition about it. Yes. I see. Yes. Well, there was, there was. As with any issue you've ever heard of, and most that you haven't, there is a change.org petition about this. Ah. Um, and some people were saying, make Guinness go vegan. 
um, which is, you know, which is fine. And and I do think, I would imagine if you did a survey of, 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 of punters in a pub, um, most people would not realise there were, were crushed up, dried fish bladders in their beer. Um, and probably most people would say, oh, do you know what, I'd rather I didn't have that. I do not want that. this, thank you, barman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, perhaps is it an example of protest um, achieving something. Well done, Change.org, and, and well done, the... Uh, the people behind it. Excellent. Just one thing. Mm. Um, I wanted to run past yeah, you. Yeah. Um, did you see uh, when they're going to make this change? Oh, straight away, isn't it? Mm. Here's the rub. Uh, April. What? April A- next, <laughs> next year. year. So, mm. so I've just been drinking fishy. Yes, yes. Uh, anyone still who is trying to find Nemo, um, it's Inside Dave. Prediction time. So, prediction time. My favourite bit of the show, Dave's least favourite bit of the show, because mm. we whap our crystal balls out. We try to predict what is going to happen this week. And so far, we've got it pretty badly wrong all the time, but I've got it less badly wrong than Dave. 4-1 is the score. Um, now, what we've missed a bit of time, haven't we, because I was off being snivelly. What's the current state of play? Who did, had a prediction and did it come true? Uh, so your last prediction was that in the Rugby World Cup final, there would be a protest. Did that oh, happen? yeah. Well, not. No. Well, no. no, no, it didn't. Not massive. Well, not that no. we saw. Now, no, not that we saw, you but know, that was the point. It was happening in front of our eyes on television. Yeah, but the TV producers are very good at what you never see streakers now. It was always the radio presenters who were like, there's a streaker on the pitch, on the pitch and you quickly turn on the TV and there's never any sign of them. Yeah, so we don't know for sure that there wasn't a protest. Not having it. And I've still got that outstanding prediction, which I hope you're still letting me get away with, that when Amber Rudd off of Inhoff Corner does her long-trailed energy policy reset speech, there'll be nothing of any interest in it. But that still hasn't happened yet. No. Well, um, thrilling, eh? Yeah, pretty much. But I'm going to claim a win because I had a prediction uh, the last time we were here, episode 29, and I said this. But wait, there's going to be a bonfire. Go! A a big one. (laughs) Atop of which is a guy which will look like George Osborne, right? And the prediction is that this picture of George Osborne, the guy, burning. So, basically, that's a point for me because that that happened pretty much. Uh, Why? Well, so there were two very large and symbolic burnings of hate figures, right? David Cameron, uh, with a part of himself inserted into a pig, was burned on a very large bonfire, and Jeremy Clarkson was also burned on a very large bonfire. And basically, morally, they are George Osborne. So I kind of basically... No, absolutely not. Yeah, they are. They're you are basically not the same, having that they're basically in the any same. circumstances. It's purely just luck of the draw. Like, you know, they'd happen to alight upon Cameron and Clarkson, but they might just as easily appear George Osborne. It's just luck of the what draw. What world are you living in? I'm living in... What world are you living I'm in? I'm living in world 4-1 down. That's what I'm living in. But also, basically, the spirit. I was basically right. I just chose the wrong basically politician. basically right. You were fundamentally wrong. Who fundamentally wrong would have been a, a, a Terry Wogan being systematically disemboweled oh. and thrown to the wolves. That would have Poor been wrong. Tell. Do you tell Miss Children and E last night? So did I. Well, yes, but you weren't supposed to be presenting it as far as I'm aware. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're diverting ourselves and you're being extremely slippery. Um, that Guinness and your fish bladder has gone to your head. You're mm-hmm. not having that because George Osborne did not get burnt on top of a uh, bonfire. So screw you. 
Talking of bonfires, uh, I am going to make two predictions this week. One is that the ongoing and frankly devastating fires in Indonesia, which is something we shouldn't have, uh, we haven't talked about, but should have talked about um, already on this this bigger emissions than the whole of. Germany for this year or something? Well, that is that is um, my prediction, basically, because Sorry. they keep going through these terrifying milestones whereby the raging fires, which have been going now for, for months, have emitted more CO2 than the annual emissions for various countries. And, it's, and it has now gone above Germany. And I predict that at some point in the next week, somebody will say it has uh, been responsible for more emissions than America. Oh, that's such a stupid prediction. So, all right, look. Why? Because the Indonesian fires are still going on and they're horrible yeah. and therefore the CO2 emissions are going to keep going up. Yeah. So at some point, predicting that I predict that this week there'll be even more CO2 emitted from that thing than there was last week. Well, right, what do you want? Yeah, you can have some of these. I've got another prediction as well. Go on then. Um, I predict that Dave and Ol, off of Sustainababble, are going to appear on the exciting weekly economics podcast, uh, which is done by the New Economics Foundation. What do you say about that? I think that's uh, a prediction that I sincerely hope comes true. And if indeed your prediction is correct, then I suggest that today you pootle over to uh, the weekly economics podcast on iTunes or whoever else you download your podcast and download a bit of babble in your unexpected ear holes. Very nice. Very nice. It is a lovely podcast. It's an extremely informative podcast, the Weekly Economics Podcast. And somehow um, we're on it. <laughs> some, for some reason, they've allowed us to go on there and confuse everything, mostly ourselves. But it was really nice of them to, to have us on and we had a great time. So I do go over and listen to it and subscribe to their podcast if you get the chance. I like the bit when they said to us, you're not allowed to say anything too mean about politicians. And there was one bit in the middle where I could see the producer Hugh's eyebrows going up as I was saying something exceptionally mean about George Osborne. (laughs) I don't think that'll make it in. I don't think that'll make it in. Is he an expert on badgers? He said he studied badgers for five years and then he And he he didn't know what they ate. Right. We're just like, how are these guys powered? I don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Mashed potato. Why should the renewable energy sector be any different? Um, And if renewable energy is so good, why can't it make it on its own? Uh, So listen, right, two (laughs) things. No, Uh, no, I'm being being Paxman. I don't obviously (laughs) believe this. Okay, so that is just about it for this week's Babble for episode 31 of Sustainable Crikey, the same age as me. Um, thank you very much, Ol, for uh, returning from your near-death experience and gamely battling through a little bit of particularly cough to present this week's Babble. Thank you, as always, to Arabella, uh, your six-year-old niece, for gamely regaling us with her take on the news eco-guff. Thank you, as ever, to the wonderful Dickie Moore off of Bearcraft. They play the music at the beginning of the show, the end of the show, and the intertwinkling, I think is the word you use, Dave, isn't it, throughout. It is. Dickie is wonderful. Do check out his band, Bearcraft. Indeed. So you can get in touch with us and tell us what you think of the show. We're on Twitter at The Babble Wagon. Email us at hello at sustainababble.fish. Uh, check out the website, sustainababble.fish, or find us on Facebook. Just look for Sustainababble. And if you, however you choose to download us, 
Make sure the world knows that you think we're great by giving us a review, unless you don't think we're great, in which case sod off. Okay, Dave, well, assuming you don't clog up your arteries with fish bladder between now and then, I will see you next week. See you then. Cheers. Thank you, Dave. Bye. say about this is i do i've had a wee hobby horse a wee hobby horse that sounds ever so painful (laughs) you want to see someone about that